Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our long-running series with James Jordan on the life of Jacob. Here, Jordan begins to dive into Genesis chapter 29, specifically verses 1 through 15, which deals with Jacob and Rachel and Jacob's employment to Laban. And along the way, he'll discuss some interesting details about the stone being on the mouths of the wells and some of the symbolism with flocks and sheep. We want to thank you for listening into this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing the life of Jacob in Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29, and we'll get through the first 14 verses and maybe verse 15, which is kind of a pivot and a problem in the passage. I'll read chapter 29, 1 to 15, and we'll see if we do it all this morning. And Jacob lifted up his feet and went to the land of the sons of the east. And he looked around him, and there a well in the field, and there were three flocks of sheep crouching near it. I'm going to translate herds as flocks because they are different in Hebrew and I'd like to keep the word flock in front of our ears. Verse 2 again. And he looked around him and behold, a well in the field, and there were three flocks of sheep crouching near it. For from that well they used to give the flocks to drink, and the stone on the mouth of the well was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, they used to roll the stone from the mouth of the well and give the sheep to drink, and put the stone back on the mouth of the well in its place. And Jacob said to them, Brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Levon, son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is all well with him? And they said, It is well. And look, here comes Rachel, his daughter, with the sheep. And he said, Indeed, it's still broad daylight. Is it not time to gather in the livestock and to give the sheep to drink and go back and tend them? And they said, We cannot until all the herds have been gathered. Only then do they roll the stone from the mouth of the well, and then we give the sheep to drink. While he was speaking with them, Rachel came with the sheep that were her father's, for she was a shepherdess. And it was when Yaakov saw Rachel, the daughter of Levan, and the sheep of Levan, his mother's brother, Yaakov came close, he rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and gave drink to the sheep of Levon, his mother's brother. And Yaakov kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Yaakov told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rivka's son. And she ran and told her father. And it came to pass as soon as Levon heard the tidings concerning Yaakov, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. And he recounted all these events to Levon, and Levon said to him, Without doubt you are my bone and my flesh. And we stayed with him a moon of days. <laughs> it says he stayed with him the days of a renewing of the moon. It's a little bit of an elaborate translation. He stayed with him a moon of days or a month of days. And Levon said to Yaakov, Just because you're my brother, should you serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be. And will stop there. This starts off with an interesting expression here in verse 1. Jacob lifted up his feet. That expression is not found anywhere else in the Bible. And so commentators were puzzled and said, what does it mean that Jacob lifted up his feet? Didn't say got up, woke up, went away, 
He lifted up his feet. Some have said, well, this indicates alacrity and swiftness. He just got up and got going. Possibly, we're supposed to read this in the immediate context and think that when Jacob was vowing his vow, that he was prostrate, that he was kneeling in prayer, or not kneeling the way we think of it, but kneeling with his face to the ground, and that he got up and lifted himself on his feet somehow. But one thing is clear, it means he got going. And why this expression is used, it's interesting to read the commentators because they all make various suggestions and say, it's odd, it's not written the way things usually are, and there may be something there that nobody's caught yet. Probably has some nuance of meaning. At any rate, it didn't say he girded up his loins, but he lifted up his feet. Now he comes to a well. Verse 2 introduces all the symbolic factors that are under the surface of the narrative. He comes to the land of the sons of the east, moving eastward again out to the other place, the place we came from. Keep going back to that place we came from to collect things. He looked around him, and behold, a well in a field, three flocks of sheep crouching near it. Well, from the well they used to give the herds to drink, and the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the herds were gathered there, they used to roll the stone from the mouth of the well and give the sheep to drink and put the stone back on the mouth of the well in its place. A lot of repetition here. Stone on the mouth of the well. Stone on the mouth of the well. Stone on the mouth of the well. And it comes up again. Verse 8. We can't do it. Then they rolled the stone from the mouth of the well. And verse 10, Jacob rolled the stone from the mouth of the well. A lot more repetition than is necessary just to tell the story. Something's being emphasized there, and I think that there is a symbolic anticipation of Jacob's marriage to Rachel in the way this is written, and we'll see it as we go here. The word well occurs seven times in this passage. That's 1 to 14 which is a unified paragraph or narrative, and that points to its significance. You remember that many times we meet our wives at wells. really kind of goes back to the Garden of Eden where we're told that there was this spring of water in the land of Eden and it went through the garden, and that's where Adam met Eve. Water has to do with fruitfulness. Here the water feeds the sheep. The sheep throughout this passage are going to be a symbol for the sons, of Jacob. Jacob has these flocks that develop at the same time his sons develop. And as I mentioned to you several months ago, the words for flock and sheep and goat and he goat and she goat and new lamb and ram, all these different words start showing up here and they're used dozens of times in the next two or three chapters. The words just keep being repeated over and over again. Whereas earlier in the book of Genesis, those words only occur a few times. just happens to mention that there were shepherds or there were sheep. Now there's a big emphasis that God is forming a nation out of him. And the symbol of the nation is the sheep, which becomes relevant in the sacrificial system. All those sheep and goats represent people. We've already seen the goats representing people in Rebecca's sacrifice, and before that we saw the ram representing Isaac. So this has already been established, and now it sort of broadens out. And this well produces all these sheep. It's watering all these sheep. Rachel is the wife. We meet the wife at a well. Of course, you remember Rebecca was met at a well. Moses will meet his wife at a well. Jesus will meet the woman at a well and talk to her about all of her husbands and present himself as a true husband. The woman providing water 
is like the woman providing children. And the woman is the garden, and the garden has water that flows out from it. Later on in Leviticus, the woman's body is compared to a spring, and the menstruation is considered to be a monthly defilement of that spring. So the idea of water coming forth, particularly from the woman, is in the background here, especially in marital passages. And this is a marital passage. There weren't any women here. We weren't going to marry Rachel. If that wasn't going to happen, we wouldn't be in this zone of discourse. But here it is, and this stone seals over this well, and believe me, Rachel was a virgin. So there you've got what's a fairly obvious symbolism here in the background of it. Jacob then is going to be the one who pulls the stone away and opens the well. He's the one who's going to marry Rachel. So in a subtle way, the imagery here in this passage anticipates what's going to happen next and helps to give some themes, tie some themes together. The theme of sheep and flocks, the theme of wells of water, because obviously we've already had some wells of water. Jacob is the new Isaac. Isaac is the well digger. Spent a lot of time on that in Genesis 26. All the stuff about digging wells, and there was controversy, and we dug another well, and there was controversy, and we dug another well, and there was controversy. Those weren't marital passages. There the wells had to do with ministry to the Gentiles. Now we have another well passage. And Jacob, as a replacement for Isaac, opens up a well, just like Isaac did. So he's starting out to be a good Isaac. Unlike Isaac, he's not going to go bad at the end and have to be replaced again. He'll continue to do what's right, even though it's going to be hard. Now, we've studied that before, and now we're moving into it. So we've got this emphasis. Well occurs seven times, sheep occurs eight times, and flock four times. So for a total of 12 times, I suspect that's significant too. There's no doubt when a word occurs seven times in the paragraph that it's deliberate. I suspect this is deliberate too. Let's see, I've already kind of run over this. Only occasional mentions of flocks and sheep heretofore in Genesis. Dozens of references from now on to the end of the Jacob narrative. Flocks are wealth, but they're also symbols of childhood and nationhood. Rachel's well and Jacob's strength provide for these flocks. Very loose kind of symbolism and imagery here. Nothing direct, nothing shocking, just general images. The man opens the well, the well brings forth water, sheep. Just a fine picture of marriage that's in the background and its cultural effects. Now we have the large stone. And here I have to depart from the commentators. The stone on the mouth of the well was large. And it says the shepherds waited until everybody had gotten there to move the stone. Now, that is always read as this was a great big old heavy stone. And they couldn't move it until all the shepherds had shown up and then they could heave ho and eight or nine strong tough shepherds would move this stone. But Jacob, Samson-like, moves it all by himself because he's so excited to see Rachel or because the Spirit gives him strength or whatever. It's almost miraculous that this giant stone that's so heavy that ten men are required ordinarily to move it, Jacob moves it. Well, that really is not at all necessary reading of this passage. You can think of another very good reason why they didn't open up this well till everybody showed up. 
and that's so that nobody would get into a fight over it. You open up this well, depending on how much water is in it, it might get used up. And if somebody else shows up later on, there might not be much water for them. One thing is for sure, it's going to start getting muddy and foul. And so, for good neighborliness, you wait till everybody gets there to open it up. So that nobody can say, hey, you guys drank up all the water, you messed up all the water before I got here. That's a perfectly good explanation for why they waited. It has nothing to do with the stone being too heavy. The stone was large, would have required some effort, but it's not necessarily that they waited to move the stone because the stone was heavy. They may have waited to avoid social conflict. And I personally think that's at least as likely or even more likely an explanation. We're not told. It does not say we have to wait till everybody gets here because none of us by himself can move the stone. If it said that, then the Jacob as hero, Jacob as Samson interpretation would be secure. But it doesn't say that. It just says they waited until all the herds and flocks had gotten together. Then I've got down here, since Jacob could move the stone all by himself, I don't think we're supposed to think of him as Samson. I mean, the passage does not require us to think of him that way. Maybe it was big, but not that big. On the other hand, the passage doesn't even say that Jacob moved the stone all by himself. So if he did move it all by himself, it wasn't necessarily a five-ton stone. And he may not have moved it all by himself at all, as we'll see. And in terms of anticipating the narrative and all the marriage and children and everything else that's going to be coming up, symbolically, Jacob is the right person to remove Rachel's stone. When Rachel comes up, and in a sense it's her well, it's her stone, he removes it, and that anticipates their marriage. We're also told that there were three flocks of sheep. Could have been told several flocks of sheep or some flocks of sheep. We don't know how many shepherds there were. Could have already been 25 shepherds there. I mean, if there were 25 shepherds there, there's plenty enough guys to roll even a really big stone. We just don't know. We're not told. But there were three flocks there. With Laban's, that makes four flocks. And four is a symbol of a world or a community routinely in the Bible. A nation is like a house with four corners. The leaders of the nation are called cornerstones. The three mighty men of David are the cornerstones of his army. David is the chief corner, and he has three corners. Saul, when he was going to put Jonathan to death, it says the corners opposed him. Those are the three generals. Daniel has three mighty men. Jesus has three mighty men. Job has three mighty men who turn against him. That's a theme throughout. Four men, one a chief corner and the other. is a symbol of the world. Four rivers go out of Eden. Wherever you see four, four horns of an altar or something, that means the extent of something. And my guess is, basically, we have four flocks of sheep that come here. Rachel would be the last one once she arrives. Then the community is formed there at the well. And then we open up the well. So if we start to look at it that way... We got a well. Water's going to be taken out of that well in four directions. For flock A, flock B, flock C, and flock D. We got a well. Water going in four directions. A woman. We really are cast back to the Garden of Eden in terms of a motif or an allusion underneath things here. There's a little world here. 
a community that comes together temporarily around this well, Edenic, and you meet your wife there. And then things happen. So that's what I can do with the fact that we're told there are three flocks of sheep. Could have been done a different way. Well, then we have this nice rhythmic passage here in verses 4 of 6. If you just listen to it and count, count these phrases and listen to the rhythm of it. And Jacob said to them, Brothers, where are you from? And they said, We're from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And here comes Rachel and his daughter with the sheep. See, there's seven phrases there. There's a rhythm of seven there, and the climax is, Hey, look, Rachel. Up to now, it's just an ordinary conversation. Where are you from? Here, you know Laban? Oh, yeah, we know him. He's doing okay? Sure. Oh, there's his daughter over there. The, the way this is written and the rhythm of it, this climactic phrase that suddenly introduces something new and wonderful, that's very poetic. And that's part of the rhythm of the text. Why it's nice to have the text laid out in such a way that you can hear the way God writes it as well as just read it. Rachel is revealed. Although she's still at a distance, you know, she's bringing sheep, she's not moving fast. So she's over there and it's time to have some more conversation. So Jacob says, hey guys, you know, uh, it's broad daylight. Is it not time to gather in the flock, give the sheep to drink and go back and tend them? They said, we can't do it until all the herds have been gathered. Only then do they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. All the flocks have been gathered. Only then do they roll the stone from the mouth of the well, and then we give the sheep to drink. And as I've said, that may be for a number of different reasons. One thing this does seem to indicate is that Jacob is a good shepherd. Well, he's been a shepherd for a long time. He's been a shepherd for probably 60 years or more. Uh, he's 77. So he says, look, time's a waste in here, guys. Go ahead and water your sheep so they can have more time to get out and graze and forage. And they said, no, we wait until everybody's together. I don't know how much to do with this. You're tempted to really allegorize it even more than I already had. And they said, Jim, you've already allegorized it into death, talking about men. But doesn't Paul say, you know, when the church gets together around the water of the word, that we should wait till everybody gets there to have the supper? I mean, there's kind of an idea of a gathering of a community here, and until we're all together, we don't open up this well and all partake of it. Nobody gobbles in the water first. There's something here that's kind of, at least it's human, it's the way society ought to be, it's the way the church ought to be, and it overrides the practical considerations. If I'm right, there's ceremonial considerations here that override the practical ones. The practical thing would be, hey, first guy there levers off that stone, feeds his flock, and gets them on out so they can start to eat. But there's something about society that says, no, we better wait till everybody's here. And then nobody will be offended. Or else they got to wait till everybody's there to roll that big stone away. That's the more common interpretation, but I'm not convinced of that. Well, now we get to that. While he was speaking to them, Rachel showed up. Here she is. She came with the sheep that were her father's. Of course, she was a shepherdess. My goodness, I think we know that, obviously. So why are we told it? 
Well, once again, we are setting up a whole imagery package here of the shepherd and the shepherdess as kind of a king and queen, a sheik and a sheikette over uh, flocks and a nation. And so she's brought in as somebody who has a position, has a name, attention's called to it. And right now the sheep are her father's. It came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came close, and he rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and gave drink to the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Now, how do we read this? Well, one commentator says, they were supposed to wait till everybody got there, but as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, he was so excited, he says, I'm not waiting anymore. And he just, Samson-like, pulled that big old stone off, tossed it a couple of hundred yards away, and gave water to Rachel, while all the shepherds were standing around saying, hey, you can't do that, you got to wait for everybody to get here. Well, I guess it was one scenario, but of course we're not told that. My guess is Rachel was the last one they were waiting for. When it says, Jacob rolled the stone from the mouth of the well, it doesn't say he rolled it from the mouth of the well by himself. So if it was a big stone, I mean it was a big stone, if it was so big that not one person could do it, there's nothing here in the Hebrew that forces us to think he did it all by himself. The grammar doesn't force you to that. Jacob drew near, what does that mean? Drew near to what? Well, he drew near to where the stone was. Possibly all the other guys were drawing near too. Possibly all this means is he participated in rolling the stone from the mouth of the well. It doesn't have to mean he did it by himself, is what I'm saying. I think that the commentators that I read try to make too much out of this stone and Jacob being a mighty hero. He is a gibor, he is a mighty man, maybe he moved it by himself, maybe that's what's involved here. But maybe all this means is he got together with three or four other guys and joined in, in that sense, he rolled it, just like the rest of them did. And then he took care of giving the water to Rachel's flock. Now that's clear. He did it. Rachel didn't have to. So you just get this scenario here as Rachel showing up with her sheep. Jacob says, come on, guys. This is how I see it. They move this stone away. Jacob reaches in. He starts watering Rachel's sheep. She's standing over here saying, hmm, who's this guy? I expected I'd have to do it. Now there's this stranger here, he's been obviously chatting with these guys, and he's just kind of chipping in and watering my sheep. The way you chip in when you see something that needs to be done. That's the way it looks to her. Let's see, I've commented on A. Some say Jacob broke the rules by opening the well when Rachel wife, but it was more likely that she was the last of first can't talk today, to arrive, so it was the right time to open the well. The narrative stresses that the sheep were Laban's. Yes, it does. It's repeated. Again, unnecessary repetitions in a passage focus us in on themes. Repetitions. This is always semi-poetic. The Bible is semi-poetic, and repetitions, especially when you're hearing a text, focuses in on things that we want to see what's going to happen to the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Verse 10. Verse 10 again. The sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Verse 9. The sheep that were her father's. Three times. 
They aren't racial sheep. They're Laban sheep. Now, we probably would know that they belong to her dad. If she's Laban's daughter and she's coming out with these sheep, the first time it says she's coming with the sheep. Here comes Rachel, his daughter, with the sheep. Who's sheep? Well, obviously Laban's sheep. We keep being told they're Laban's sheep. Why? Because <laughs> 20 years from now, they're going to be Jacob's sheep. So that's going to be an issue here. Who's going to wind up with all these sheep or their descendants anyway? And then there's another thing here that the commentators point out that I think is quite right. That there is an inversion from Genesis 24 where Rebecca heroically provided water for Isaac's representative. In other words, Abraham's servant who came there as a surrogate for Isaac to check out a girl for him. And remember, Rebecca goes back and forth to the well to water all these camels. That's a lot of water. It's a lot of work. And this was kind of a test to see who the right girl might be. And Jacob does the same kind of thing. Jacob imitates his mother. He says, I'm going to show this Rachel here that I'm a good guy. I'm going to water her flock. So she gets to stand by and smoke a cigarette while, or whatever. And Jacob's doing all this work. And she's relaxing, taking it easy. So that makes her like him, even if he is 77 years old and she's 20. So 77 back then didn't look as old as it does now. So there is an interesting reversal, although it's the same thing. It's a demonstration of worth involved here. Then verses 11 to 12a. And Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and he was Rebekah's son. Now the way this reads, it reads like after he was in the water, he just went over there to her and grabbed her and kissed her and started to bawl. And then after a minute or two, he got control of himself and told her who he was. But we mustn't press the narrative to that. Frequently in the narratives, we'll have a general statement, then we'll have an expanded statement. And I don't think that he kissed her and started to cry on her neck without telling her who he was. Actually, I would take it that these statements are summarizing a conversation that took place over a while. I mean, just think about it realistically. You're Rachel. There's this guy over here watering your flock. He's just going to stand there for 10, 15, 20 minutes. You're likely to say, well, who are you? And he says, well, I'm Jacob. I'm your cousin. And they talk, and he kisses her, and he weeps over this situation, he's emotionally charged. We don't know how long the journey was, what may have been in his mind. He's amazed that God has prospered his journey so soon. Tension goes out of him. So, I think we just have to understand this is an encapsulation of a conversation that took place in a perfectly normal way. And when she had an opportunity... Well, being 13, she ran and told her father, and it came to pass as soon as Laban heard the tidings concerning Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him, embraced him and kissed him, and brought him into the house. So we have kiss, run, run, kiss in this. Rachel gets kissed, she runs to Laban, Laban runs to Jacob, kisses him. So why? Well, this is what happened, of course, but we're told all this to show that there's a joining and a bonding and a connecting up that's taking place. Rapid motion back and forth. These people are brought together. They embrace. They kiss. They share tears together. They share the water from the well and the water from their eyes. 
suppose I should point out that one of the Hebrew words for well is I, the eye of the ground, a moist place. So there may be a connection between weeping here and everybody's connecting up here. And Laban is very happy to see him. Well, guess what? Last time somebody came from Abraham's house, they came with ten camel loads of good stuff and lots of gifts. So he figures, commentators always bring this out, and I think they're right enough, Laban initially thinks, hmm, lots of good stuff is going to be coming right behind Jacob. Nothing does. (laughs) Jacob's all alone. He doesn't even have any servants with him. He doesn't have any camels with him. He doesn't have any treasures with him. He'd like to marry Rachel, but he hasn't come laden with gifts the way Eliezer came laden with gifts when he came to get Rebecca. No, no, no. So Laban soon changes his attitude toward Jacob. Initially, it's your bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That means you're my brother. Bone of bone and flesh of flesh doesn't mean husband wife. Never in the Bible. When Adam says that, your bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh is you're like me. You're not like one of these animals. My sister, my bride. You're my sister first, bride later. So brother-sister relationships are expressed by this bone and flesh thing. And you remember with Jesus in Luke 24, it says the spirit does not have bone and flesh as you see I have. Now partly that's to stress the physicality of the resurrection. It's also to stress I'm your brother. I'm like you. I'm not a spirit. I'm not an angel. I'm a human being just like you are. And we are bone of bone and flesh of flesh. So that means you're my brother. No doubt about it. Now that's going to be called into question a month later. Laban's going to say, hmm, some brother. No camels, no gifts, no treasures. Not what I want in a brother. He's going to change the way things are. And it says he stayed with him a moon of days. 28 days or until a new moon. Not sure exactly how they would have counted this. But however it would have been, it was about a month. And that's a complete cycle of time and then things change. A cycle of time takes place. One complete one. Could have been a year, could have been a week, it's a month. And I suspect with some translators and commentators that this is really the introduction to the next paragraph. You know, we've got it here at the end of verse 14 and then a space and then verse 15 starting up the next section. But you could put the space earlier and read it. He stayed with him for a month and Laban said to Jacob, Hey, because you're my brother, should you serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. I think we've got time to do this, so let's do it. Because this is where the passage starts to get a lot more fun. (laughs) What does this mean? There is a lot of question about it. First of all, we can see that Jacob has been working for Laban free for a month. He's been helping out two guys. Jacob's been going out and getting water at the well and washing dishes or whatever needed to be done around there. He's been part of the household, chipping in like a brother, like a nephew, family member, vacuuming the floor, whatever needed to be done, helping out around the house. Now it's going to change. And Laban is going to say, hey, we need to work out a contract here where I'm going to pay you for the work you're doing. Now, a number of years ago, two Jewish scholars, David Daub and Yigail Rabin, 
I remember correctly, the second name, proposed that this is definitely a reduction in Jacob's status. That if he's a brother, he's going to work in the household like a family member. He's not going to need to be paid anything. If he wants to marry one of the daughters, that can be worked out. But what Laban does here is say, you know, you're not really my brother. And you are a hired man. And he reduces him from a family member to a hired man and makes him work for the daughters. Now, others have said, no, 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 you can't read that much into it. And part of the problem is you can read the syntax of this sentence in Hebrew a number of different ways, or a couple of different ways, and it's really a question of context and what we know about Laban. And based on what we know about Laban, that sounds like a good interpretation, doesn't it? And Laban says, hey, I haven't seen any camels yet, and we're going to have to change your arrangement here, Jacob. Maybe you are a relative of mine, but you want my daughter? You're going to have to work for her. Was Laban being generous, cruel, or crafty? Well, let's think about the context. Jacob is 77. Laban's probably around 120. Rebecca married at 20. Then she gave birth to Jacob when she was 40, because that was 20 years later. She'd be 117 if we assume Laban is a little bit older than Rebecca. Remember that they negotiated with Laban for Rebecca's hand, so he was probably the older brother. We can put him at around 120. So he's older, but these are both men in the prime of life. Laban's still going to be around 20 years later, going to come out and pursue Jacob. Now these are both two mature men getting on into later life. We can't think the Sunday school leaflet picture of Jacob that you sometimes see. Here's an 18-year-old guy who comes out here and meets his 17-year-old Rachel and wants to marry her, and he's just easily abused. No, this is a man who has been in charge of Isaac's household for a long time while Prince Esau was out hunting and gathering. And being a caveman, being a crown prince, Jacob has been managing a household, and he's the equivalent of a 45-year-old man today. Only he's got even more years on him than that. He's a responsible, mature man getting on in life. So if he's willing to go for this deal, there must be a very good reason for it. And think about it, too. Staying out all night with sheep and fighting off lions and bears is something for young men and servants, not for mature men who are leaders in their communities. Now, use in David, the youngest out there, to hang around with the sheep at night. Sheep stink, they're stupid. You know all about sheep. You know, everybody's heard the sermons and lectures about how stupid sheep are and how bad they smell. We don't have sheep around here. But I remember growing up as a child, there were sheep outside of Athens, and sometimes we would drive around on Sunday. Of course, you didn't have air conditioning and cars in, and you could always tell when you drove by the sheep farm because it stank. It smelled like sheep dung, which smells even worse than cat dung. It's not, you know this. Sheep are dumb. They, wolves come after them. They go running off of cliffs. They didn't have sheep dogs back then. They didn't know what to do with dogs in the ancient world. Dogs were the enemy. So there's a lot of work involved here, and you don't send your 77-year-old brother out to do it. Uh-huh. A man who took care of sheep. Yeah, sheep are like people <laughs> in lots of ways. Yeah, that's a good story. That the sheep form a mob, then they become one. That's just one illustration. 
Of course, that's why sheep make such good pictures of people out of the human community. They have all the problems and all the possibilities of a human community. So, later on, Jacob says, I was out with these sheep at night. I had to fight off animals, all this stuff. The work that he does as a shepherd in taking care of things apparently is not a matter of going out and supervising other junior shepherds so much as going out and doing a lot of the work himself. And we know that Laban has sons. Jacob is not being treated like one of Laban's sons. And he's later on, he's not going to be treated like a son-in-law. So when you start thinking about it this way, it does look as if, very definitely, the situation that Jacob moves into here is not what you would expect somebody who's being treated as a full-fledged family member to move into. Though we got three approaches to the problem. How do we read this? Interpretation number one, Laban is generous. Hey, you're my brother. You shouldn't be working for me for nothing. Let me pay you. Let me pay you, Jacob. Hey, I got money here. Obviously, you don't have any. So let me pay you. I'm being generous. That's one way you can read it. But is that really accurate? Well, not likely. Because it's not in his character. This is not the Laban that we all know and despise. The deal he makes with Jacob is far from generous. Remember that Abraham had given camel loads of gifts to Laban's family. One might expect the same kind of generosity and largesse from Laban to Jacob in his present plight, but we see the opposite. I know you're on hard times, but oh, your family gave us lots of good stuff over here. We're still eating some of the dates you sent over here 97 years ago. Everything is fine. You want my daughter? Hey, you work for seven months and you can have her. Seven years? Huh. That's a lot. That's way more than you would expect to have to do to provide for a dowry. Way more. Interpretation number two. Laban is cruel. This is the translation that Dob and Rabin suggest. Are you really my brother? In other words, you're not. <laughs> Suddenly he changes the rules and says, you know, you're not really my brother. Are you really my brother? So should you be serving me for nothing as an equal? Should you be working as a member of the household here and kind of benefiting? Why, my son lives in our house. He vacuums, does the dishes sometimes, helps out around the house, mows the lawn sometimes, does stuff. I don't pay him, but he eats at the same table I do. He gets the benefit of watching the television or whatever's in the house. It's just when you live in the house as a household member, everything is kind of there. If you're going to be paid a wage, all of a sudden you're not. If I said, okay, you're old enough now, you're going to have to pay rent on your room, you're going to have to pay me a percentage of the water bill, and a percentage of the power bill. On the other hand, I'll pay you every time you mow the grass, and we'll pay, you know, you can do that, but it certainly would change your relationship between you and a member of your family, wouldn't it, if you did that? You might do it in a slight way, in some circumstances, but if you started getting very particular about it, you'd really be pushing your child into a different relationship altogether. So I think that this is basically correct. That's the way it can be translated. Laban reduces Jacob to a wage slave, and this introduces a bondage in Egypt situation that's going to be resolved in an exodus later on. And because there's so much exodus stuff here, 
I think that's what's going on. Jacob is helpless to do anything about it. I guess he could run home, but Esau would kill him. <laughs> There's no place else to go, and he wants to marry Rachel. So he's stuck. He has to go along with whatever Laban puts on him. He must submit to these very severe terms. Then there's the third interpretation, and that is Laban is crafty, which kind of mingles these two. But Laban, we should understand this as Laban saying, Hey, bro, let me pay you some wages here. So that he appears generous, but he is in fact acting to reduce Jacob's status. In fact, although he appears generous, he's acting to reduce Jacob's status. If Jacob is a brother, then Laban would have to give him Rachel on very generous brotherly terms. But although he calls him brother, he actually reduces him to a wage slave and sets very harsh terms for Rachel's hand. But he does it in the crafty way, saying, Hey, brother, let me pay you. And then, in fact, what works out is anything but generous. So it combines the two. My guess is that we're supposed to read this the second way. That we should read this as a rejection of brotherhood. Hey, you're not really my brother. Are you my brother? Answer, ah, not really. Let's work out a wage situation here. It's hard to know for sure. It's hard to see how Laban could call Jacob brother and then treat him as he does. That's why I'm inclined to think that the statement means rejection of brotherhood. It also correlates most easily with the exile and exodus theme. See, Laban welcomes Jacob. Pharaoh welcomes Joseph, Jacob, and Israel. Then as a Pharaoh grows up who does not know them, introduces him to slavery. Same thing here. After a month, Laban turns against Jacob, forces him into this work situation where he has no choice about it. There's a period of bondage, but during that period of bondage, Jacob multiplies both people and flocks. Similarly, in Egypt, during the period of bondage, Israel multiplies. And then we can keep on, as we will see when we actually get to the exodus out of Laban land. There's just abundant parallels. Parallel after parallel after parallel. Cross the river into the promised land, you get a foot wound. In the book of Joshua, when they cross the river into the promised land, they all circumcise themselves, which is a foot wound. And there's many, many parallels to the future exodus. So that makes me inclined to think that's what Laban does. Laban could have said, you know, you worked for 30 years for Rachel. There still would not have been anything Jacob could do about it except say, I don't want her. So he couldn't go home without being killed by Esau. Laban knows all this by now. Jacob's told him everything. <laughs> Laban now knows that he's got Jacob over the barrel and that Jacob is helpless. He's got to stay there. And now Laban can abuse him and do anything he wants to him because there's nothing Jacob can do about it. So that's what's really going on here. One way or the other, however we translate this phrase, it's for certain Jacob's status is being reduced. And this is equivalent to being made a slave in Egypt. And for now, these are the kinds of things that are going to happen. An interesting twist on the bondage in Egypt during the bondage in Egypt, the Egyptian men wanted the Israelite girls. In this situation, it's the Israelite man who wants the Egyptian girls. But the same kinds of things are going on. Marriage, children, multiplication, bondage, and then deliverance. That's it for this week, folks. Next week we'll start in verse 16. And we will look at the 
bizarre marriage ceremony that Jacob was tricked into. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.